Welcome to Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock. And me, Grania McMahon. Today's guest is Professor Roisin Costello, author of our forthcoming title, Privacy Law in Ireland. A qualified barrister, Roisin researches and works on EU law, technology law, with a particular focus on privacy and property rights, media law, language rights, and law and literature. She is an assistant professor at DCU at the School of Law and Government. Today, we're going to chat about privacy law. Roisin, we're delighted to have you with us today, and thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Can we start firstly by discussing the very recent decision from the European Court of Justice in relation to Graham's wire. I wonder if you could explain what happened in the case. Sure, Gwania. So th- this case stems from a criminal charge uh, from this jurisdiction. Dwyer was convicted, as we know, of uh, the murder of Elaine O'Hara. And there was subsequent to his conviction a dispute about whether some of the evidence that was used to convict him uh, should be admissible in court and should have been allowed to be admitted uh, before the court, the trial court. Uh, The particular objection was to uh, data which was accessed under the Communications Retention of Data Act 2011. And that was a piece of national legislation that gave effect uh, to directives, EU directives relating to data retention and said that phone companies and other service providers had to retain data uh, relating to telephony services uh, for a certain period of time, in particular two types of data, uh, metadata and then traffic data. So that would be things like the location of phones, uh, the numbers which the the phones were dialing, etc. And Dwyer alleged that the uh, underlying European law that the 2011 Act was based on uh, had been declared invalid, and and that was uh, correct. And that as a result, the national legislation should also be invalid, and that his rights had been breached uh, in circumstance where it had been used to collect this data, and in particular his privacy rights under Article 7 and his data protection rights under Article 8 of the the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. So he made an appeal on that point uh, to the national courts, and before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court decided there were matters of EU law which they needed further guidance on and sent uh, uh, the case as a referral to the Court of Justice. This is really the most recent in a a series of decisions uh, which relate to various uh, national pieces of legislation regarding data retention, all kind of based on that original data retention directive and then the, the piece of legislation which succeeded it. So in some ways, the outcome for Dwyer was very kind of predictable for practitioners. The Court of Justice reiterated, as it had done in a series of previous cases, including two cases uh, late last year uh, and in 2020, that retention, indiscriminate and general retention of data, isn't permissible. Um, So the kind of scheme which the national legislation in Ireland was operating was in violation of, of Dwyer's rights. So a very kind of uh, clear judgment from the Court of Justice, one which was very much expected. They said it's not that there's no circumstance in which data can be retained like this, but if data is going to be retained, it has to be retained in a proportionate manner. The general indiscriminate retention of data, as was the case under the Irish legislation, wasn't permissible. The Court outlined, I suppose, uh, importantly for us and for uh, any kind of state authorities, undertaking criminal investigations, uh, several circumstances in which data can be retained. So they said, if you're going to limit the data that's retained to uh, data based on certain geographic characteristics, so it would only relate to certain areas uh, or certain categories of individuals, uh, that might be permissible. Uh, They also, and I suppose emphasised maybe 
specifically in the context of some of the concerns the state had flagged in relation to how difficult it is to investigate crimes if there's no access to retained data. Uh, that it was possible to put in place national legislation that would say that you could seek what they call expedited retention. So effectively, in the course of a criminal investigation, there may be a point at which there is a suspect identified and the Gardaí, in this case, uh, decide they need access to that person's phone records, for example, or to metadata, which would allow them to track their location and who they were communicating with. And the court said, you know, there's nothing to stop putting in place a system where when that becomes uh, the case in an investigation, the Gardaí go to court and they seek a court order which would direct a service provider to retain that person's data, that suspect data, from that point forward. So the courts see that as kind of the workaround. Now, there's been some dissatisfaction voiced with that in terms of practicality. Um, at the point at which somebody becomes a suspect, suspect, it may be too late, and the data which is retained from that point forward uh, may not be kind of as helpful as data which would have been retained uh, prior to and during the period the offence was committed. So that's the that's the kind of um, I suppose compromise the Court of Justice have identified in terms of how uh, data can be retained in a way which will still aid investigations. So they emphasised very importantly, I think, at the end of the judgment that. While they find that the, the legislation is invalid and it, that it breaches rights, it's for national courts to decide whether evidence which was collected under that uh, legislation while it was in force um, can be used, what the rules about admissibility will be. So what we're looking at now really is uh, a Supreme Court uh, decision which will reflect the direction they've received from the Court of Justice in terms of the standing of the 2011 Act and, and the breach of rights involved. And then a separate appeal relating to the admissibility of evidence in Dwyer's case. And Roisin, when we're talking about the Supreme Court, there was a lot of interest about this case, but we knew that it was going back to the Supreme Court. So among experts in the field of this area, what would you guys predict may be the decision from the Supreme Court, if if you can predict that in terms of that case? And then we might talk about the, the Court of Appeal matter separately. I mean, I think the Supreme Court uh, decision will, in many ways, be quite cut and dried. Its its limits are going to be dictated to a large extent by the Court of Justice's decision. So it'll have to find that in circumstances where data is retained uh, generally in relation to all citizens, um, without regard to any of the limiting factors the Court have identified, that that isn't permissible. Now, there are carve-outs for national security and terrorist offences, and the Supreme Court will probably go some way to clarifying how those would be understood in national law. Uh, but in many respects, the, the significant kind of judicial uh, outcomes really of Dwyer will be for the Court of Appeal and the criminal appeal relating to admissibility. And the kind of, I suppose, more, maybe we might say, quotidian impacts of Dwyer for, for all citizens beyond that will really be a matter for the Oireachtas who will have to provide in legislation uh, for the decision in Dwyer and indeed in a way which reflects the the kind of broader string of uh, data retention decisions, which Dwyer is the most recent iteration of. So they're going to have to really uh, look at how to reform the legislation in the area and give effect to data retention in a way that congrues with with that CJU decision we've had last week. Absolutely. I think it'll be um, really interesting. So then when we talk about the Court of Appeal decision, because I think there there may have been a sense of panic when when this CJEU decision came out, but I understand that the Court of Appeal matter is deals with other issues, so it's not so cut and dry. Would 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 that be correct? 
Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct, Ronnie. So there's the separate, I suppose, civil appeal, which is about the breach of rights, which is what we've had the Court of Justice decision on. And then we have the sec- separate criminal appeal, which is, well, if that evidence was collection and breach of rights, was it correctly admitted and, and could it be used to ground this conviction? And I suppose that's where an awful lot of sort of... Um, kind of alarm arose uh, certainly among among the general public when the decision in Dwyer came down kind of fears that this would lead to you know people being released from prison because the evidence would be automatically inadmissible and of course it's, it's never quite as simple as that and it's certainly not as simple as that in this case so what we're really going to have is um, I, I suppose quite an interesting decision and a decision which will I mean inevitably appeal, be appealed to the Supreme Court about how we draw standards of admissibility in particular where evidence has been obtained in breach of European law rights, which isn't really an issue the courts have focused on to any significant degree already. We have decisions like in JC, uh, which came down slightly after uh, Dwyer in 2015, which imposed new rules about how you can treat unconstitutionally obtained evidence. And that would say that if the evidence was obtained uh, in breach of constitutional rights, but that breach was unintentional uh, and wasn't conscious and deliberate, then it can still be admitted. It's um, so, so that's how constitutionally, I suppose, inflected evidence is treated. The question really for, for the Court of Appeal, and I imagine subsequently for the Supreme Court, will be, well, aside from unconstitutionally obtained evidence, how are we going to treat evidence that breaches European law rights? Um, and the, the treatment it has received so far seems to indicate that um, the appropriate test would be the test that's outlined in the DPP and O'Brien, and that says that evidence that's obtained in breach of rights, so illegally, but not in breach of constitutional rights, uh, is treated slightly differently. So there's slightly more discretion for the court. Um, and there is kind of a, a contextual uh, analysis of whether there was a, a deliberate breach of rights uh, in the setting involved and, and the court's discretion as to whether or not to admit the evidence. It's unlikely, I would say, that uh, O'Brien could be applied really in this case without some kind of uh, clarification or qualification. The principle of efficacy in EU law means that if you have a right in EU law, it has to be, you have to be practically able to exercise and it can't be functionally impossible for you to. So in circumstances where you have a privacy right, as here, it has to be possible for you to enjoy that right. Uh, and the court may have to impose limits on what inadvertence means, what conscious and deliberate means uh, in that context. So we may see, I suppose, um, either a clarification of, first of all, which applies either O'Brien or JC, and secondly, whether they can apply kind of in their unadulterated form as we have them at the moment, or whether in case involving EU law, they have to be amended slightly. You've just outlined some of the ways that this ruling will be applied or, or the hurdles that are involved, but could you maybe outline how the case will affect other criminal cases? Sure. So I, I think the most important thing to remember here, Rachel, is that uh, there's no kind of blanket uh, rule for how this will have a knock-on effect on other people's convictions. So there may be individuals who have, similar to Dwyer, been convicted and sentenced to terms in prison or to other punitive sanctions, in part as a result of evidence which was collected on the 2011 Act. What's going to happen really is that in each of those cases, there will have to be um, a, a decision as to whether given the particular time it happened in particular, whether there was a conscious and deliberate breach, depending what piece of precedent we rely on, whether it's O'Brien or JC or, or kind of a, an undisclosed as yet third door. So I suppose that's the main thing. It's going to be a quite case by case basis. I think really an awful lot of this may turn on issues of timing. 
So the original kind of decisions which uh, challenged the the kind of uh, validity of of data retention legislation come very shortly uh, after uh, Dwyer is charged. Um, So at the time the evidence is collected in his case, that's perhaps safe. It depends how how the court analyses it. But certainly there are convictions which come down slightly after that, even six months after that, uh, and and run all the way up to quite recently, uh, which will be more, uh, I suppose, trickier to analyse in terms of whether there's a conscious and deliberate breach of rights there. Um, So it could all come down to really a quite technical matter of timing. Thanks so much for that. Can we talk about the privacy protections in the EU in general now? Where do we stand Sure. So, I I mean, I think it's fair to say the EU is probably one of the the most privacy friendly jurisdictions, uh, certainly in the way we conceive of privacy is not just this kind of uh, quite abstract right at a very high level, but as having very kind of day to day impacts as well and day to day controls and what can and can't be done. So if you kind of look at the the hierarchy of of privacy protections, um, you've got protections in terms of data protection written into the fundamental constitutional documents of the European Union, like the Treaty of Fundamental Rights, or yes, the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union. And then the the Charter of Fundamental Rights has obviously protections for privacy in Article 7 and data protection in Article 8. We've also then got kind of lurking in the background and it has interpretive force in terms of the Charter, the European Convention on Human Rights and a really significant body of jurisprudence um, there in terms of what privacy means and what data protection means. And privacy conceived of really very expansively as this very important social value that protects not just, I suppose, privacy as we think about it very traditionally as the right to be left alone and not have somebody interfere with your posts or your communications, but also this right to this kind of sphere uh, uninterfered with by the government where you can develop your personality and your identity. And it also protects interactions with other people. So it's a very kind of social right. And one certainly that's a lot broader than the way we would think about privacy, maybe in other common law jurisdictions like the US, where privacy can have much more kind of technical and limited meanings. So I suppose that's the kind of umbrella protection. Uh, and then we all, all obviously have kind of the, the way that trickles down to kind of our everyday activities, which is through secondary law. So things like the General Data Protection Regulation, which provides kind of a very broad suite of protections. Uh, And then obviously there is subsidiary legislation at the national level, uh, which deals with matters kind of, um, I suppose, that the the GDPR defers to states on. So things like how health data is treated quite a lot of the time in terms of the more kind of technical aspects. Uh, Also things like how data for deceased individuals is treated um, and genetic uh, data. So all of those kind of issues then are are to be provided for by, by national legislation at kind of far more detailed level. So we've got kind of, I suppose, a quite layered protection of privacy that goes all the way from the kind of general and maybe quite seemingly vague statements in the constitutional documents all the way down to very kind of quotidian matters. And then in Ireland, at a kind of purely national level, we have quite a strong constitutional protection for privacy, which says that, and it's conceived sometimes as a constitutional tort, because you can sue uh, not only against the state in the very traditional sense, vertically, but also you can seek damages against private individuals for breach of that constitutional right. So, for example, if a newspaper publishes a story about you and you claim it's a breach of your privacy, you can pursue them for damages. Not only can pursue the state if if you think they violated your rights. So I suppose maybe a, a quite complex landscape of privacy protections, an awful lot of kind of intersecting and overlapping laws, 
um, but one which is as a result quite comprehensive if it is quite complex uh, despite that. Um, so I suppose that's our, our kind of general landscape. Within that obviously there are issues about enforcement, so how effective all of that is in practice um, and, and we might talk about that I think a little bit later but certainly uh, Ireland has been given uh, a significant amount of responsibility in terms of enforcement uh, because it is the jurisdiction where an awful lot of uh, large companies that have significant privacy impacts in terms of their day-to-day activities are based. Um, so in that respect, our, our regulator has a, an awful lot of power over how effective those guarantees are in practice. And can I ask, what about the broader rule of law foundations that privacy is associated with? How important is the right? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I'm obviously quite biased. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. But privacy is one of, uh, I suppose, quite core rights, along with property and, and freedom of expression, that are supposed to protect, even in the most conservative understandings, a very discreet space, both physically in terms of being able to exclude people from your private home, for example, but also ideologically in terms of affording you a certain amount of space uh, at an intellectual level to develop your ideas, to discuss your ideas with others, and as a result, to really develop yourself as a citizen and develop your views as a citizen. So certainly there is um, a really traditional kind of liberal argument uh, that the right to privacy has a really fundamental uh, role to play in developing uh, citizens who are democratically involved and engaged and who hold or can collectively hold the government to account. So it has a kind of accountability function as well. Uh, And all of that has been kind of used really, and particularly, I suppose, in the European historical context, to argue that privacy is one of the really fundamental values uh, to a democratic society based on the rule of law. Because, of course, eroding privacy is how we place citizens under surveillance. It's how we, if a government is, I suppose, inclined to do so, really impose a chilling effect on the way people express themselves. Obviously, at a very kind of practical level, privacy is also how things like a secret ballot work. So it's really important uh, to the rule of law at a very kind of I suppose ideological level in one sense, but also in a very practical sense as well. Because if citizens feel that they're constantly under surveillance, they're much more likely uh, not to protest if they don't disagree with government action. They're much more likely not to exercise their vote or not to do so freely if they don't think the privacy of it is protected. Yeah, there's a lot to think about, about the distinction between a physical space and also an intellectual space. I really like that. Will we chat about the broader basis of the right and the rule of law issues? Sure. So I, I suppose within a European context, um, privacy is, is seen as this really kind of social right, as I've said before. So it's seen as protecting your capacity to be, develop an individual identity. And that means not just your capacity to wear whatever you like or form whatever kind of relationships you want, um, but also to express yourself in in public spaces in certain contexts. So, for example, to wear national dress. uh, It has been used to protect uh, really diverse things from expressions of ethnicity to the use of particular spellings of names, for example, if we look at some of the ECHR jurisprudence. So in that way, it's also quite important to maintaining a diverse society and a society where individuals uh, are protected in expressing their individual identity as well as just in its development. And it's complementary. I know we often speak about privacy as being in tension with rights of freedom of expression. And there's a trade-off, you know, I want my privacy protected and you shouldn't be able to publish this story about me. But in other circumstances, and I think if we talk about kind of the sociological origins of the rights, they're far more often complementary because they're protecting this capacity to develop relationships, to go into public spaces and to construct your identity through our relationships with other people. 
So in that sense, I suppose the origin of the rights are maybe more complementary than we usually think. Certainly within the European Union, if you look at the kind of drafting of the ECHR, uh, just kind of uh, in the middle of the, the 20th century, there was a huge amount of concern about the way in which privacy had been eroded um, during the kind of run up and during the Second World War and, and also during um, the Cold War by the USSR in particular that the right to privacy had been stripped away in a way that supported uh, very authoritarian government action. So that individual families, for example, felt that members of the family were surveilling other members. And in that respect, there was a huge chilling effect on what people would express to each other and how they would constitute themselves as individuals and how they would form relationships. And there was a feeling also that fundamentally privacy, apart from protecting that very core family unit, was necessary to make sure that we could develop, I suppose, broader social connections. So it was not just the very conservative idea of privacy based on a family home and a kind of very nuclear family, but also this idea of privacy as, as pushing beyond that and not and needing to protect more than that, I suppose, as we moved forwards, that we couldn't retain a very, I suppose, uh, limited idea of privacy as it had maybe been defined classically, just strictly related to property but needed to, to adopt something that was more, I suppose, uh, outward looking and slightly more progressive in terms of the way in which you could protect uh, us beyond our homes and beyond those kind of very classically defined family units. Lots to think about, Roisin. Um, would you talk to us about the rule of law crisis in Hungary, Poland, and maybe bring us up to date on what's going on there? Sure. So I suppose um, it's it's quite complex. The, the EU is now kind of issuing... Uh, the, uh, I suppose quite significant warnings in terms of the next steps it's going to take under the rule of law mechanism but the, I suppose the issues that underlie a lot of this have been uh, brewing for a, a significant period of time so in some ways that step by the European Union while it might have been considered extreme previously is now uh, kind of almost o- overdue um, so significant a number of the issues relate to uh, I suppose institutional uh, matters so in particular in Poland the independence of the judiciary I think there are broader concerns about uh, separation of powers in, in both jurisdictions and perhaps the um, legitimacy of elections in the Hungarian case. But there's also concerns about very, uh, I suppose, discrete limitations which are being placed on private individuals in the way they live their lives. So if we look at some of the laws that have been passed in relation um, to gender identity and sexual identity uh, in both jurisdictions, real issues of concern, especially given the kind of I suppose we could say the, the fundamental goals of the European Union in terms of promoting fundamental rights and societies which were based on the rule of law. So there's, I suppose, institutional issues, but there's also those very uh, rights-based issues that are perhaps easier for uh, individuals to understand. The, the wranglings about the composition of the Supreme Court in Poland and who is and isn't admitted to it or how long they're permitted to serve, um, those can seem, I suppose, quite technical sometimes, but the very kind of uh, practical restrictions on freedom of expression or individual expression, uh, I suppose, are a quite significant indication of the way in which the very fundamental values of, of the European Union, certainly at a constitutional level, as we think about them in the treaties and the charter, uh, are being very significantly challenged. So in that respect, there's a, a significant, I suppose, intersection with um, with human rights, not just with the kind of very abstract principles of the rule of law. 
uh, and real concerns for how individuals are permitted to express their identity and how those identities are protected. Turning to a slightly different topic, Roisin, many of us are now concerned about our privacy online. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, was fined in March for breaching EU data privacy laws. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so there's, uh, I suppose, there have been a series of um, decisions from the Data Protection Commissioner in this jurisdiction over the last, I suppose, 18 months, which have been quite significant for for large uh, multinationals who are kind of social media companies, I suppose, broadly, we could say. The the Marsh decision was a a fine of about 17 million, and it followed an inquiry by, by the Data Protection Commissioner uh, into a series of breach notifications. So uh, complaints made in relation to, or I beg your pardon, notifications made in relation to data protection breaches uh, between June of, of 2018 and December of the same year. So I, I suppose we can see there initially a, a significant delay between the period of which the notifications are made uh, and the coming down really of, of this decision and the imposition of the fine. Uh, and we can talk maybe a little bit about, about um, those kind of delays separately. The ultimate finding of, of the report was that there had been a breach of uh, Article 5.2 of the GDPR and Article 24.1. So Article 5.2 um, imposes essentially responsibility on the data controller for demonstrating compliance with the uh, provisions of the GDPR and in particular Article 5, which says that you have to ensure, I beg your pardon, the security of personal data, uh, including that you make sure it isn't accessed uh, in an unauthorised way uh, and isn't unlawfully processed. So that's the first thing they say, you, you haven't fulfilled your responsibility in, in that respect. And then the second thing is um, Article 24.1, uh, which says that taking into account the nature, scope, context and purposes of processing, there has to be effectively a proportionate uh, protection ensured of the data involved. So if data is particularly sensitive, for example, it's, it's subject to uh, to greater care in terms of the processing and security. Um, and crucially, there's a kind of ongoing obligation in Article 24 to constantly review the security which is provided um, and, and to make sure there's, uh, I suppose, proper, uh, what they call technical and um, organisational measures to ensure that the processing that's being performed of the data is performed in accordance with the regulation. So the DPC finds that uh, the meta platforms have infringed Article 5.2 and 24.1. They say effectively they, they aren't ensuring uh, the security of the data um, to the extent that's, that's required. And they're not reviewing that on an ongoing basis in the way that Article 24 requires. Crucially, they just think really there aren't appropriate technical and organisational measures in place to ensure that they can that, that meta can demonstrate the security measures are being implemented in practice. So effectively, there's a lot being said on paper, but they can't show that that's been, I suppose, uh, transmitted or translated into practical activities. Um, And I suppose very crucially, the the March find, because the data which was involved was being transferred across borders, triggered Article 60 of the GDPR, uh, which requires other European supervisory authorities uh, to be consulted and and be engaged effectively as as co-decision makers in terms of the fine that's going to be imposed. So that's the kind of broad outline of what happened. It's in some respects, it seems like small fry compared to some of the more recent fines that have been imposed. So if we think about the fine um, that was handed down uh, by the European, uh, by the Data Protection Commissioner uh, last year in relation to some of the activities uh, of WhatsApp and complaints about transparency, 
uh, the fine there uh, and the complaint there was again under 5.1 but are also under articles 12 to 14 which relate to certain information that has to be given to consumers. Um, and, and the f- complaint there resulted in a fine which is uh, just slightly over 225 million euro. So in relation to that, the, the fine of 17 million this March may seem uh, quite small. Now that fine is permission has been granted by the High Court uh, for that to be to be challenged. So we'll see what the ultimate outcome of that is. Um, but the, the 17 million euro fine uh, from March is perhaps not the most significant uh, fine which has been handed down, certainly in, in the recent past. And I think maybe it's also worth mentioning here that there is a draft decision which came down in February of this year, just slightly before this fine, uh, which relates to the, I suppose, the impacts of Schrems 2, the decision from uh, late uh, 2020, uh, and the impact of Schrems 2 in relation to data transfers. So that draft decision ordered uh, Meta and, and several other companies to, um, I suppose, Meta, and then anybody else who's doing a similar thing will be subsequently engaged, ordered them to stop transferring data to the US in circumstances where Schrems too had said that the existing privacy shield agreement uh, wasn't sufficient, that it wasn't uh, protecting the rights of, of individual citizens and couldn't be relied upon. Uh, and that's kind of potentially um, an issue we're going to be dealing with for some time because the new, I suppose, privacy shield version two, which has been agreed uh, recently, seems on initial examination to have some of the same issues that privacy shield one and the safe harbour had. And so we're really still kind of working that out. And I think that draft decision is potentially going to be one of the most interesting kind of regulatory issues we have to we have to deal with, certainly in the next uh, 18 months. Given all this, I I take it, should we expect to see more of these fines? And do you hope to see, I guess, a kind of tightening up of our data? Yeah, so I I think it's fair uh, to think that we will see, I suppose, um, at least equivalent regulatory activity. So certainly the DPC has um, the DPC has been criticised in the past at, at points for not being active enough in its investigations and not progressing them quickly enough. Uh, I think what we're seeing now is an increased um, level of regulatory activity here and a desire on the part of the DPC and other regulators to progress complaints to the point of, uh, of a finding more quickly because, of course, as long as the complaint is ongoing, the harm is potentially ongoing as well. Um, so by the time, if you, for example, a complaint in, in 2018 and the decision isn't given until 2020, there's a period there where harm is still happening before the decision is imposed. So I suppose in that respect, we're seeing maybe not a tightening up, but um, a more sustained engagement at a regulatory level with these issues. Uh, and the regulator, I suppose, also taking more investigations of its own volition without waiting for complaints to come into it, which is, I think, probably to, certainly from a, from the point of view of civil liberties organisations in this jurisdiction, they've, they've certainly welcomed it. So we're seeing more regulatory activity generally, I think. I also think the complexity of the GDPR is really only becoming apparent five years after it entry into force. And I think we see that in particular with some of the, the kind of uh, Schrems-like cases where some of the practical implications and the data protection has for the ways in which uh, companies deal with data are only really being kind of um, fully teased out uh, now at a, at a remove from the, the entry into force of the regulation. Routine, thanks. That was so interesting. And I think a lot, lots of us are very concerned about our data online. Um, we did see another recent case where Bank of Ireland was fined in a data breach. Would you mind uh, telling us what happened in that case? 
Uh, sure. So this is, I suppose, uh, a more kind of traditionally domestic case. Um, the Data Protection Commissioner handed down um, a fine just over uh, uh, €450,000 um, and reprimanded uh, the bank for uh, 22 incidents. What had essentially happened here was um, customer in- information is provided to a central credit register, uh, which is kind of a centralised system that collects and stores information about loans. Um, So stores uh, personal information and personal financial information. Uh, And between uh, 2018 and 2019, there were some unauthorised disclosures of the information that was held uh, in that register and some accidental alterations of of information as well, so that some of the information that was held wasn't accurate. Reports of those breaches were made uh, and the DPC um, commenced an investigation of 19 incidents that it thought amounted to personal data breaches under under the GDPR. It found that in 17 of those, the bank had failed to um, report the breaches without undue delay, which is what it's required to do uh, under under the regulation, and had failed to report them with sufficient detail. So it hadn't provided enough information about the particular breaches that had happened and how. Uh, And it also found uh, 14 cases in which it said the bank simply hadn't reported the breaches quickly enough. Um, So kind of very, I suppose... From a, a practitioner point of view and the point of view of those uh, in industry, a really telling indication of, I suppose, the um, the diligence that the DPC expects of of individual data controllers, that they expect them to be taking, you know, very proactive steps to notify of, of data breaches and expect them to be giving clear and, and quite comprehensive information about what precisely has happened when the breach occurs. Um, so specifically, then the the DPC finds the bank has failed to implement uh, appropriate measures to ensure the adequate level of security for these data um, relative to, I suppose, the, the risk uh, presented by its processing. So as we saw there under, under Articles 5 and 24, uh, and it made uh, it imposed the fine, obviously, but also made kind of a supplementary order that the bank would make a number of changes to the way it's technically and organisationally uh, dealing with the data. So in many ways, sort of, um, I suppose, a similar kind of um, issues very broadly to those which are raised by some of the social media complaints uh, but here far more kind of specific allegations of breach and I suppose more maybe um, day-to-day issues which would arise for for more companies you know the right to very expediently uh, notify that a breach has happened uh, and to give comprehensive information in relation to it. And Roisin do you think the DPC's findings in that case and I suppose you know, the, the the Facebook cases as well. I mean, could it be an early indicator of a wider problem of companies mishandling customer data? And do you think banks and other companies could face court action from customers in due course? It's, it's certainly a good question. I'm not sure that it's indicative of any kind of greater pattern other than that in any kind of industry involving processing data these kind of risks exist and the longer you're processing data and the more complex that data is and the more sensitive, the greater the risk that it can be mishandled. Um, so I suppose I, I don't see it necessarily as representing any uh, particular divergence or kind of new trend. I, I think probably what it does tell us is that there's a greater um, responsiveness from a regulatory perspective to these kind of issues when they occur. Um, and I think perhaps also it's it's maybe telling um, that the DPC itself is quite clear on not only that a fine will be imposed, 
but that there are particular actions uh, which need to be taken. And I think that's probably probably quite important. There's a, a right to, to pursue action under the GDPR for a, a breach like this. And we haven't seen a huge amount of litigation in this country, but there's you know, certainly nothing to prevent an individual making a claim where their data has been breached in this way. I mean, the, the significant problem obviously would be um, evidencing damage in particular and showing obviously that the breach of, of privacy is in and of itself an injury, but evidencing something that the court could call compensate in a particular way. If, for example, as a result of a breach, you had suffered identity theft or something similarly in those circumstances you might be able to evidence significant uh, financial loss inconvenience kind of other expenses um, but in circumstances where it's merely I suppose uh, an injury in principle to the right involved uh, in those circumstances the kind of cost benefit of pursuing an action is is reduced I think for individual claimants. Can we talk about the recent UK Supreme Court ruling of Bloomberg v ZXC against Bloomberg, which makes it more difficult for UK media outlets to publish information about individuals under criminal investigation? Sure. So this is actually a really interesting decision and a decision which kind of, I suppose, is one of the more recent ones dealing with how data protection and privacy rights can rub up against uh, reporting of uh, criminal matters in particular. So in, in this case, um, the Supreme Court was asked whether individuals who are under criminal investigation can have a reasonable expectation of privacy prior to being charged. So effectively that they shouldn't be named in publications uh, before a charge has been made uh, by the relevant uh, authorities. So I suppose the, the court point, pointed out uh, very importantly that uh, it's a legitimate starting point um, to assume that a, a reasonable expectation of privacy exists. But, uh, and this is, I suppose, the important qualifier, that it very, very much will turn on the facts of specific cases. So it's going to be a kind of a case-by-case analysis looking at the facts of, of each individual uh, dispute as to whether an expectation of privacy can arise. Um, and of course, that could go to things like whether the individual involved has uh, made themselves a public figure, whether they've disclosed information themselves, for example. Uh, a range of kind of contextual factors uh, can be looked at. Um, it, it, I don't. The issue hasn't really arisen um, before the Irish courts in, in the context of this, largely because of, I suppose, legislation which limits uh, what can be said or what should be said uh, by the Gardaí about individuals who have not yet been charged. Um, so it's, it's normal in this jurisdiction to see somebody named only after the charge has been made. Um, but I suppose in the context of the Supreme Court decision, uh, it's a decision of Lord Hamblin and Lord Stevens. Uh, and what they are kind of emphasising is that, I suppose, first of all, it's a contextual analysis. It's not that we're going to say there's always a reasonable expectation of privacy. Nobody can be named prior to charge. But also they said that this uh, kind of the general expectation of privacy, uh, a rule that uh, um, somebody couldn't be named prior to being charged would apply only in contexts where uh, the investigation that was involved or uh, in which the individual was potentially going to be charged uh, was a, essentially a state investigation. So an investigation uh, by a person or an organ of the state. So a uh, police authority, for example, uh, it wouldn't apply in the same kind of analysis wouldn't be undertaken 
if it was, for example, a journalistic investigation. Uh, and of course, in that circumstance, you'd be triggering freedom of expression issues. So the, the kind of um, presumptive position and the, and the analysis would be would be different. In relation to this, we have seen some high profile people avail of the right to be forgotten recently on Google. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a topical subject. So when we're talking about the right to be forgotten, how does the UK case link in with, say, the rights to have criminal convictions forgotten under the right to be forgotten? Uh, sure. So I suppose there's a, a kind of a range of, of cases uh, about the right to be forgotten. There's, I mean, if we talk about kind of privacy uh, prior to being charged, there's also obviously the, the Richards cases against the, uh, the BBC from 2019. And in that case, uh, Cliff Richards, the musician, obtained uh, damages where he'd been identified as a subject of an investigation uh, and had never been charged, subsequently emerged, the allegations were, were spurious. Um, so I suppose Bloomberg and X, uh, ZXC isn't, I suppose, um, it's, a, it's an important development, but I don't suppose it's um, kind of out of the blue in, in, when you, you compare it to kind of the decisions in Richards. In relation to the right to be forgotten, then, I suppose this is interesting because there are previous decisions uh, from the UK about spent convictions, and whether somebody's criminal convictions, which have subsequently become spent, uh, can be subject to a right to be forgotten. So probably the most uh, important case, the first case in that respect is NT1 and NT2 and Google, which is a, a 2018 decision of the English and Welsh High Court. Um, and one of the, the first decisions about the right to be forgotten following the decision in Google Spain, um, certainly at a, a national level in, in the UK. Um, so that case involved two uh, complainants, NT1 and NT2, both of whom were sort of businessmen who had had uh, convictions uh, in relation to kind of activities uh, they'd undertaken as part of their business. NT1 had been involved in quite a controversial property business uh, and he'd been uh, convicted of a sentence uh, in relation to kind of uh, fraud charges. And he had sought now a period of years later to have search results delisted, which uh, were news stories about, about his conviction and his kind of business dealings, which had led to it. NT2, also a businessman involved in um, a company which had been, and both, I suppose, I suppose mentioned both claimants were anonymized, so we only kind of have the, the broader sketch. NT2, also a businessman, he'd been involved in a company which had been, uh, I suppose, uh, protested by environmental organisations. There had been threats against uh, the business and those leading it, including NT2. And as part of the kind of response to that on the part of the company, he had ordered the use of unlawful phone and computer hacking to kind of gauge who was involved in these threats and the seriousness of them. That was obviously a criminal offence as well. And he was he was also convicted of a criminal offence and, and received a sentence. And he was similarly seeking the delisting of these search results, which disclosed uh, the details of a now spent criminal conviction. The court's analysis is interesting in that uh, Mr Justice Warby, who was uh, leading the court, took a very, I suppose, practical and pragmatic view of whether the public interest would justify delisting these cases, these uh, results, based on really the offences involved and whether there could be any public interest in the information remaining available uh, as easily as it would be if it was returned in a search. So specifically, he says, and he looks really at the conduct of the individual claimants as well, says NT1 uh, the offences he's alleged uh, he was convicted of relate to dishonesty, really very serious dishonesty. Uh, and he had quite a significant penalty imposed. He was sentenced to four years in prison. 
Uh, he said he also conducted himself during this uh, application for the delisting as uh, quite arrogant. He was evasive. He wouldn't answer questions. He said his evidence was poor. Uh, and during his original criminal conviction, he displayed kind of similar characteristics. He hadn't been kind of cooperative with the court. He denied any wrongdoing. And the general view of Mr. Justice Warby seems to be that NT1 continues to be somewhat um, evasive and not particularly honest and that there is a public interest in the results remaining available. In contrast, in NT2's case, while he says that the crime was still serious, it was not a crime of dishonesty, which would have a public impact in the way that NT1's did uh, and who had not been committed for financial gain, like uh, in the case of NT1. He also emphasised um, the difference in the way NT2 uh, comported himself, that he had pledged uh, guilty at the earliest opportunity in relation to the offence. He'd expressed considerable remorse and he'd made kind of very full and frank disclosure as far as the court was concerned in this application. So the court grants him the delisting request and, and he, he, his right to be forgotten is vindicated. But it's a, it's a very interesting case in as much as an awful lot turns on the conduct of the claimants themselves. And I suppose the public interest is almost kind of a subsidiary issue. So I suppose in that respect, the Bloomberg case is part of a a quite interesting range of decisions which look at how we weigh up the right to be forgotten um, against the public interest and how much of somebody's activities and their personal motivations or the way they conduct themselves, how much that can be considered Uh, when we're talking about delisting issues, in particular issues where it's related to uh, judicial decisions, whether whether criminal or civil. That was really fascinating. We're just going to close out our podcast, as we always do, with a quick fire round. So just some lighthearted questions to, to finish off the interview. So to begin with, what are the top three things you would take to a desert island? Oh, my God. Um, Oh, I suppose. Should I be like ruthlessly practical and say like sun cream, a fishing line uh, and a good book, I suppose. Yeah. Keep me entertained and not yeah. sunburned. <laughs> well, that leads us into our, our second question, which is uh, what book are you currently reading? I actually just finished Fierce Appetites, which is a memoir by a professor of Celtic Studies in Maynooth University. Uh, really, really excellent. Highly recommend it. And then the last time you had a good laugh. Um, that's a great question. Oh God, such a stressful end of term. <laughs> oh, probably I, I got COVID a couple of weeks ago and was convinced I had just like licked a lamppost or something and rang one of my friends and said, you know, like I got COVID. I don't know how I could have gotten it. And she at that point disclosed that like 20 people who were at the wedding with me at the same table as me that weekend had also gotten COVID. <laughs> And yeah, it made me feel a lot better. It was a lot more of relief than anything else. At least I knew where it had come from. Um, but yeah, that's probably the last like really good laugh I had. So sometimes you have to laugh. Yeah, if you didn't, you cry. <laughs> and <laughs> all of us in isolation. Exactly. And finally, if you could choose another profession or career, what would it be? Oh God. Um, oh, I do something lovely. I'd be like an art historian or something very non-confrontational. I just got to look at painting full day. <laughs> That's, that, that's great. Thank you great. so much for joining us. It's been wonderful talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks, Roisin. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Grania. 
That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. Our thanks to Roisin Costello for joining us today. You can find out more about Roisin's book, Privacy Law in Ireland, with consultant editor Ronan Lupton, Senior Counsel, on bloomsburyprofessional.com. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.